you'll remember the verse that we look to every time we do this is Psalm 119, 18. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. When our, our young people, and I didn't finish that thought, I don't think, they're studying this alongside of y'all. You're doing it in here. They're doing it in Bible class. And so we're all learning the same thing together. You pray for them. They're about to finish up in, in, in two weeks. Well, actually a week and a half now. They'll take their midterm exam. They'll be done with this curriculum. And then we move on to other things. And so uh, they're excited about that and having that out of the way for Christmas break. And, and I'm excited to take them into something new. Um, just by way of reviewing what we covered last week, Lesson 35 uh, was was coming to terms. A term is a key word or a phrase that an author uses to make his point. Um, and we talked about two secondary resources that are especially helpful with terms in the Bible. And, and I, this, this is something we talked about in another class today. It is so important that we define our terms. For instance, what does born again mean? Because I got news for you. We're not the only group that uses that term. A Mormon will tell you they're born again. So we better know what our terms mean. And when you're studying the Word of God, you better know what a term means because it can lead you to faulty or even false doctrine just like that. Okay? So, so we're learning... Uh, <laughs> I'm too far ahead, aren't I? Um, we're, we're learning about terms, and, and we used a concordance, and I personally recommend a, a strong, exhaustive concordance of the Bible. If you don't have one, I can help you find one cheap. Um, and a Bible dictionary, and that helps us with our terms, and we did a little exercise last week working through that. And then we talked about figuring out the figurative. How do we know whether or not something in the Bible is meant to be taken literally or figuratively? And we gave you nine ways to do that. If you'd like to get those, um, we have plenty of, all these notes are saved digitally. I can print you up as many copies as you need. Just let me know, or I can email them to you or whatever. Um, really quickly, let me run through this. How do you know if something's meant to be taken literally or figuratively? First of all, use the literal sense unless there's some good reason not to. If there's, if there's no reason not to take it literally, then take it literally. Um, use the figurative sense if the passage tells you to do so, like if you know he's talking about a dream. Uh, use the figurative sense if a literal meaning is impossible or, or absurd. When Jesus talks about, when he talks about the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, it wasn't a literal sword. It's talking about his word. Okay, uh, use the figurative sense if a literal meaning would involve something immoral. Jesus said, except you eat my, eat, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't see the kingdom of God. Well, he, we know that he must be talking about something else because cannibalism would be wrong, you know. Um, use the figurative sense if the expression is an obvious figure of speech. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, grave, where is thy sting? Use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the code context or scope of the passage or if it goes contrary to the general character or style of the book or if it goes contrary or if it involves a contradiction of other scripture or doctrine so that's just a quick reminder if you'd like more of those you can certainly have that uh, then tonight we we move to lesson 37 which is putting it all together and 38, Don't Stop Now. Both of these are brief lessons, and we didn't spend a great deal of time in them in our Bible class over there, and we're not going to tonight. So I want to give you two main truths to embrace from these lessons, and then we're going to move right into lesson 39. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Father, would you help us now 
as we, uh, as we work through these lessons, three of them if that's, if that's your will tonight. Help my teaching to be sound, help it to be correct, and help it to be enjoyable. And Lord, may we find ourselves exactly where you want us to be at the end of it. May Jesus be lifted up in it and just help us to, to not only know better how to study your word, but, but Lord, to have a deeper love for it. And we'll thank you for all that you're going to do tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, um, lessons 37 and 38, I've got, I've got two things to pull from that. Number one, when you're studying, always see what a therefore is therefore. Anytime you see therefore in a scripture, contextually, you need to zip back and look what it's talking about. Okay. There is therefore now no condemnation. Well, how do we know that? You go back to the previous chapter and read all about it. Okay. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, what's the therefore, therefore? Go back to the previous chapter. You know, the scripture's full of this. Here's the other thing. Don't ever be satisfied with the observation and interpretation. Press on to application. You're going to find out later, there's a whole lot of people that they get to the, 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 the conclusion of interpreting their Bibles and never do anything with it. Okay. Uh, I've got a little formula here for you. Observation plus interpretation minus application equals ineffectiveness. Observation, what you see. Interpretation, what it means. Minus application is just going to yield ineffectiveness. I've heard of, and perhaps you've even been in churches and under ministries in which the, the pastor or the elder or however it's set up is really good at, at, at giving out the Word of God, but never draws the net, never tells you what to do with it, never gives you, if we could put it this way, the so what. We want to watch out for that. Because if you've got all the observation and interpretation in the world without application, just renders it moot. Did you know that there are, there are all kinds of guys and even women that work in Yale Divinity School? They can quote large portions of Scripture to you, but they're not doing a thing with it. There's no application. And in most cases, they're not interpreting it correctly either. Okay. So we're moving now from observation, what do I see, and interpretation, what does it mean, to application. How does this work? Observation, what do I see? Interpretation, what does it mean? Application, how does it work? Another way we could put that would be, what do I do with this information? Or as you've heard so many times from the pulpit that's not currently up there, so what? So what? So we move on to lesson 39, the critical step of application. Can I tell you that these next three lessons are my absolute favorite lessons in the whole book. And I cannot wait to start digging into these. The critical step of application. The first thing that the author gives us is, number one, make the truth attractive. Now, I take issue with that a little bit, and we'll get to that in a minute. But, but turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. I prefer the, the phraseology to reveal the truth for what it already is. We don't need to make the truth attractive. 
We need to show it as attractive. It's already plenty attractive. You know. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after what? Godliness. Truth is connected to what? Godliness. Now with that in mind, go to chapter 2, verse number 9. Chapter 2, verse number 9. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, purloining, but showing all good fidelity or faithfulness, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. What does that word adorn mean? It means to wear it well. And the whole point that the author is trying to make, though the words are a little clunky in my opinion, is this. Live in such a way and embody the Word of God in such a way that it's attractive to the world that needs it. Now, how do we, how do we fail to do that? Well, I think probably the, the greatest reason, way that we fail to do this is when we take biblical positions but fail to take biblical dispositions. Now, you know as well as I do, there are just some times that we just need to drop the hammer and say, this is just how it is. This is right and this is wrong, and God's for this and God's against this, and I'm all for good, hard preaching. But you also know there's a whole lot of groups out there that they, they go out of their way to be obnoxious, and they don't need to. You preach the Word of God as it's written. You don't need to add anything to it. God's Word will do its work. But, but should we not also live in such a way that undergirds the truth of God's Word and we wear it well? Sure. Sure. So application is so critical because if we don't have application, then the Scriptures become ineffective. So we're going to look tonight at five substitutes for application. Five, five things that pop up instead of application. People that take the Word of God, they observe, they interpret, and then rather than apply it in their lives, they go another direction. And we're going to look at five of them tonight. Number one, when we choose interpretation instead of application. Now, what does that mean? We've gone through all the work of, of exegeting a passage and then we rest in the idea that we've just exegeted a passage. Whew. That was a lot of work, and I'm a better Christian than you because of it. When I was in college, um, our junior year, I don't know how this is for other, other majors, but, but in theology, at least at Pensacola, our junior year was far and away the toughest. And here's the reason. Because in addition to everything else, if, if, you had, if you had certain, with exception, I think one or maybe two theology degrees, you had to take biblical languages, Greek, and in some cases Hebrew. And in most people's junior year, 
you had to do what was called a Greek exegesis. We used to say the exegesis exits Jesus, but they didn't buy into that with us. And it was just, it, it was the one time of the year that the librarian left us alone and let us spread books everywhere and lay in the floor and everything else because you had all these Bible majors, these 11th, uh, these uh, sophomore, no, junior Bible majors laying all over the library, borrowing books, handing books back to each other, trying to get this project done. And it was, I mean, it was, it was the equivalent of, of your big thesis. And man, if you didn't do well on this, I don't care what kind of grade you went into it with, you are not going to pass. And it was just a mess. And at the end of it, I can't think of one person that walked away from that and said, wow, the Lord really showed me. You know, we all said, I survived. It's on paper. I'm done. But let's be honest. How many times do we go through the trouble of interpreting a passage and then rest in the satisfaction that we interpreted the passage. This is what this means. And I can prove it. Great. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? There is great danger in concluding that a passage, quote, doesn't apply to me. Now, are there certain portions of Scripture that we can't relate to the church or that we can't relate to this group? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like everything that's promised to Israel. Hey, churches, we can't claim any of that. There's not one square inch of Dan to Beersheba that I've got coming to me. Not one. And we don't practice replacement theology where every promise he made to Israel is now to the church. No, the promises he made to Israel go to Israel, and the promises he made to the church goes to the church. And the only time that that ever intersects is when a Jewish person gets saved, accepts Christ as their Messiah, and become part of the church. It's the only time it ever intersects. All right? So, but even so, just because a passage may not be directly addressed to me does not mean that there is not an application to be made, something for me to learn from it. How do I know that? All scripture is all scripture, all. The Greek word for all is all, means all. It's not all, but it means all. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is what? Profitable. That's why you bear down and read through the genealogies. Because there's something in it that's profitable. Be honest, when you're doing your Bible reading, sometimes you're like, oh, Numbers, Leviticus, First Chronicles. I just, read, I just read Samuel and Kings, and Chronicles just says a lot of the same stuff and throws in some genealogies. It's like God was mean or something. No. It's all profitable. The author gives this example of what, how dangerous it can be when something doesn't apply to us. How many of you ever heard of Kitty Genovese? All right, Kitty Genovese 
um, several decades ago was a young woman who lived in a very fashionable part of New York City. Somebody gained access to their, um, to their living place there. It was some, some kind of an apartment that had a courtyard in the middle of it. He attacked her and abused her terribly and ultimately stabbed her many, many times over to her death. And nobody called 911. Or then nobody called, there wasn't 911 then. Nobody called the police. They started canvassing and, and, and knocking on all the doors, and they found out that no less than 38 people heard her screaming and did nothing. Why? Whatever's going on, it's not my business. Somebody else will take care of it. It's somebody else's issue. This doesn't apply to me. Now, we, we think of that and we're like, my soul, what a, what a craven way to view things. But how much better is it that we can just glibly go over the word of God and say, not for me, not for me, not for me, not for me. When all scripture is profitable and by virtue applicable. Maybe the best example of this is the Pharisees. Clear direction in Torah that didn't apply to them. Rules for thee, but not for me. And one of the reasons they really didn't like Jesus is he called them out on every one of them. So when you read the word of God and you come to the conclusion that something there is speaking to you and you don't do anything with that, what, is, what do we call that? Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him is what? Sin. So be careful that you don't substitute interpretation for application. Number two, don't substitute superficial obedience instead of substantive life change. Here's a question we need to ask ourselves when we're studying the Word of God. Am I obeying the expectations of God in spirit as well as in letter? What did Paul say? He said, the letter does what? It killeth. But the Spirit bringeth life and peace. What did Jesus say of his Father? God is a what? A Spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Truth is the letter. Spirit is everything that underlies the letter. Now, what do we mean by all this? Okay. Superficial obedience instead of substantive change. Let's say that you're studying Exodus 20. Of course, Exodus 20 contains what we call the Ten Commandments. And you're working through Exodus 20. And you get to the second commandment. Verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And he goes on about that. And you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm in good shape there because I don't have any graven images in my house. There's nothing that I bow down to and worship in my house. So I'm in good shape. Are you? Do you think that maybe God has more in mind than just that? 
How would we worship a graven image today without worshiping a graven image? I'll tell you how. When we try to make God look like what we want him to look like instead of who he really is. Sometimes we want God to be fuzzier and nicer than he is. And sometimes we want him to be meaner than he is. When our only real course of action is to see God for who he is as the God of the Bible. And rather than try to contort him to what we want him to look like, we need to change ourselves to look like him. How about this? We're still in Exodus 20. We get to verse 13. Thou shalt not kill. Well, I've never taken anybody's life. Thought about it a few times, but I've never taken anybody's life. Superficial obedience. But what would be the substantive life change? If I'm studying that and God's Spirit gets a hold of me, you, you know what I realize? 1 John 3.15, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Maybe when I read, thou shalt not kill, it's not just about the superficial obedience of not actually taking a life. It's about learning to love people instead of hating them. Here's one. Exodus 20, 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Whew. Clear on that, are you? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27, You've heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's Jesus speaking. By that standard... I'm an adulterer. By the way, these are the kind of things you bring up when you're trying to witness to somebody that just can't see themselves as a sinner. Well, I'm pretty good compared to my coworker, my neighbor, my brother-in-law or whatever. No, we're not. There's not a one of us that deserves heaven. Not a one of us. See, we can, get, we can get hung up on a superficial obedience that, you know, well, well I, I, I don't lie to people, so you're never deceptive. I'm not a thief. You ever took a paycheck for less than the job that your employer meant for you to do? Well, I don't say OMG. I got news for you. Anytime you're glib and, and, and less than ultimately respectful about God, you've taken his name in vain. So have I. That's how I can look at somebody and tell them, not only have I broken some of the commandments, I've broken every one of them. Every one of them. So we want to be careful that we don't substitute interpretation for application or rationalization, I'm sorry, or superficial obedience to substantive life change. Also, be careful that we don't substitute rationalization instead of repentance. Huh. How easy is it for us to try and justify our sin? Because we've got a really good reason. Well, 
I know what I said wasn't altogether truthful. But if I tell the truth, it's just going to open this whole big can of worms. I, I made a promise to my wife when we first got married. And by God's grace, I've been able to keep that promise. I said, I'll never lie to you. And can I tell you something? It has cost me dearly. Because there have been some times that she has asked something, she has brought something up, and they, at least on the surface, a little white lie would have really been an easy way to get out of this mess. Those of you who have been around a while, you know this. The problem with lies is you have to keep lying to cover the one before it. And before long, a little white lie, which there's no such thing, but a little white lie becomes a great big old whopper. And it's, it, you know, telling the truth is the best way to keep your story straight. But I'm justified. I can treat that person that way because of how they treated me. Except the Bible doesn't give you that. Well, well Jesus, you know, the Romans have done so many terrible things to us. Well, if a Roman soldier compels you to go with him a mile, I'm telling you to go with him too. Here's one. I'm justified in my bitterness. You, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how they treated me. And by the way, I'm not minimizing when people mistreat you. I'm not. But I know what the Bible teaches, and the Bible never gives us an allowance for bitterness. But boy, we like to rationalize when what we should be doing is repenting. When we talked about this in class, there's a step right before repentance. It's called confession. Most of us could quote 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we tend to view the word confession like we would in 2023 English. Confession. Yep. I did it. You got me. That's not what that word means at all. The word confess literally means to agree with. That means when I have lust in my heart for somebody that's not my wife, if I'm to get that right with God, you know what I have to do? Lord God, you're right. Your word says, I committed adultery. I committed adultery. I'm exactly what your word says I am. I did exactly what your word says. You are right, and I am wrong. But for many of us, myself included, we have a hard time getting to that point because we can't stop rationalizing it. Lord, I... I heard that message. I heard that song and it spoke to me. I read this in your word and everything your word says is right. I agree with you. 
there have been times my wife and I have had uh, varying opinions about things. And I've told you before that there have been times that I knew I was wrong, and yet I kept fighting for the fight, just for the sake of fighting. I wanted to win. And then after I had won, I would say, no, honey, you're right. But I won! But what usually ends up happening in the midst of all that mess is the Holy Spirit of God says, you are wrong. And the first thing I do is I say, Lord, you're right. And then I have to humble myself before my wife and say, you were right. I was wrong. I had to do this the other day with the basketball team of all people. I have been preaching to the girls' team from the beginning. Do not let your emotions get the best of you if you're frustrated and let it go. And we had a practice where I had to run full court with them. It was comical. My body rebelled against every aspect of it. Any basketball ability that I ever had completely failed me in every way. And you know what I finally did? I slammed the ball up against the wall. And immediately the Holy Ghost of God said, wrong. And I had to sit in front of all these girls and say, ladies, I cannot expect something of you that I don't expect of myself. I was wrong. And do you know what their response was? Okay. And that was that. I don't know if it had any impact on them, but it made me feel better. More than that, I think it pleased God. Then once you've confessed, then you begin the process, and many times it is a process of repentance. Don't think that you're going to say, I'm turning from this, and that you're never going to want to turn back to it again. No, you've got to stay on it and stay on it and stay on it. You turn away from it, and you turn towards Christ. And when we're studying the Word of God, there is no room for rationalization. There is only room for repentance. My sabbatical from preaching, if you have an idea that it was, you know, me kicked back with my favorite beverage, enjoying myself. It was a very painful time. Because I had to come to grips with a lot of areas of my life that I had let slip. Nothing disqualifying, but things that I had, I had either gotten too busy to maintain, or you'll see later there's another one that, that was really a problem. I had to repent. So everything's good now, right? Nope. Still repenting. Still working through all that. I'll tell you something else we need to watch out for. Emotional experience instead of volitional decision. 
You ever been to a revival meeting or a camp meeting or, a, you know, with the teens when in class we talked about going to teen conference? And I mean, it's just everything just kind of mixes in together, the music and the preaching and just the atmosphere. And before you know it, you're just crying and snubbing. And I mean, it's just, and I'm telling you, it is just, wow. I remember going to one one time years ago, and I kid you not, I felt like I'd never sin again. I was so on the mountaintop. But you know that's when the devil's waiting. Can you imagine what it must have been like? The emotional experience to be pinned up against the Red Sea and to watch Moses hold that rod out and that wind come and blow those waters apart and they walk across on dry land. Wow. And then to get to the other side and to turn and there's the Egyptians coming and you watch as the waters crash down on them and never again will you have to worry about the Egyptians. What an emotional experience. Did it last? Not long after that, we see three words. Then came Amalek. And we have these emotional experiences. We're studying the Word of God, and we see something we've never seen before. And man, a lot. By the way, be careful if it's something nobody's ever seen before, because that's trouble. But but you've never seen it before, and oh wow! And I mean, you're having a time, and you're emotional, or you're in a service, and you're emotional. That's all great, and that's as it should be. But it better result in a volitional decision that by God's grace, I'm going to walk this way. That includes putting measures in your life that force you to. I'm about to say something, and God knows my heart. He knows I'm not being prideful. I'm, I'm moving to a point. The, the MacBook that, that y'all got me, and the MacBook that preceded it, and the computers that preceded it, If you were to scrub those things and search and search and search, you wouldn't find anything morally objectionable on it. Why? Because I'm super saint? Nope. Because I put certain things in place to make me do right when my flesh doesn't want to do right. I made a decision. I don't want this to be an issue here. And, and, and I'm going to be tempted by it. It's going to be something that, that, that passes in front of my face just in the general public. I have got to put something. I am making a decision, a willful, volitional decision that I'm going to do right by God's grace. And I'm going to put every measure in place possible to keep me going right even when I don't want to. Accountability measures all around. Why? Because an emotional experience isn't enough. We got to make plans. You stay out of trouble when you make plans to stay out of trouble. We have a rule here no earbuds. Are earbuds inherently sinful? No. 
But earbuds make it mighty easy for these kids to listen to things they ought not be listening to. So why put it there? Why put it there? Watch out for emotional experiences that don't result in volitional decisions. Here's the last one. And all God's people said. And this is one of the ones that I had to work through in my time out. Communication instead of transformation. Preachers are real good at this. We are real good at effectively telling people what the Bible says. But not allowing it, not allowing it to change us. One of the problems that I've dealt with is is the the voices that aren't truthful in my life. My flesh likes to lie to me. The world lies to me. The devil certainly lies to me. And you come to a point where you start believing things that aren't so. And then God gives you a godly wife that says, but wait a minute. You just preached on this. Don't you believe it? (laughs) I told you about her pouring scriptures into me at my worst evening. And my snap back was, I do this for a living. Don't you think I know this? No, God gave me a wife that's okay with squaring her shoulders back and barking back at me too. Y'all think she's all sweet and everything. That's, that woman can get mean when she needs to. Communication instead of transformation. Those of us that have preached know exactly what I'm about to say in this regard. If my time in the Word of God becomes just about getting together a message... I'm in trouble. I'm in serious trouble. It needs to first be about what message does God have for me. One of the most difficult disciplines for me as a preacher, somebody challenged me in this a while back. Pick out a certain number of scriptures and covenant with yourself not to turn them into sermons. They're just for you. You're like, okay, easy. No, it's not either. Not when you're reading and studying. You're like, man, that'll preach. I'm not sure what I was going to do that next Sunday. So that might, nope. That's for me. I could write it down. Nope. That's for you. Because I don't mean to make you a good preacher on this. I mean to transform you. I mean to change you. Now, these are the five things to watch out for. Interpretation instead of application. Obedience, uh, superficial obedience instead of substantive life change. Rationalization instead of repentance. Emotional experience instead of volitional decision. Communication instead of transformation. All of this leads into next week or the next time we're together. Truth that transforms. 
Go to James chapter 1 with me, won't you? All of this builds up to this. James chapter 1. Verse 23. Verse 22 says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. What kind of man is this? This is a man or a woman who doesn't apply. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Truth that transforms. And then the lesson immediately following that is a transformed people. If we can, if we can get this into us, Observation, interpretation, and application. God will use that to do in you and in me what preaching can never do. We could bring in the biggest names in this whole country, and it would still not be as effective or more effective than what God gives you at home at your kitchen table.